Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Welcome to episode 42 of Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. I'm your host, Mark Yacono, a managing director in Major Lindsay in Africa's advisory services practice. We're here today to discuss the results of ALM's annual mental health survey for 2023. I believe it's uh, it's survey number four. Um, we have a great panel, the first time we've had four guests at once. Um, Gina Passarella, Editor-in-Chief, Global Legal Brands at ALM Media. Mike Kasdan, a partner at Wigan and Dana, mental health advocate and the founder and chief enthusiasm officer at Lawyer, Lawyering Well Human. Paula Davis, the CEO of the Stress and Resilience Institute and the author of Beating Burnout at Work, and Diane Costigan, the Director of Coaching and Wellbeing at Winston & Strawn. Gina and Mike are my first three-peat guests, and Paula and Diane are among the lead group of repeat guests. So everyone has been on this podcast before and been very generous with their time. And with that, we'll get right into it. Gina, the ALM started this process with a year in the law, uh, which I think was in 2019. That's right. Yeah, we did a year-long project looking at mental health um, and wellness in the legal profession. And that spawned um, survey number one, and now we have traveled a little bit. Would you set up um, the 2023 survey? Tell our listeners a little bit about it, a little bit about the methodology. And I know you put a lot of time and effort and your team put a lot of time and effort in adding some new questions. And it's um, a very data rich survey with, with lots to discuss and lots for people to glean. Sure thing. And thank you so much for making the time to, to talk about it because we obviously feel very passionate about it at ALM as I know everybody on this podcast does. Um, so like in years past, the survey goes out to anyone in any role working in any law firm of any size anywhere in the world. So this is a global survey. We did open it up to law departments this year. I will say that the responses from that side were, were pretty minimal. So we'll do a better job of, of promoting that in the, the coming year. So the bulk of these responses that we'll be talking about today really are coming from the law firm side. I mean, the, the very large majority. Um, we had, as we typically do, around 3,000 responses. A good chunk of those were from large law. So I would say uh, 37% from firms of 1,000 or more lawyers and another about 40% almost um, that are at 200 to 1,000 lawyers broken out in a couple groups. So big large law presence, so some mid-sized firms for sure. Um, women were at about 52% versus, versus men, and then obviously other, other genders mixed in there as well. Um, a good chunk, about 50%, were from associates, so this is definitely skewing a bit younger, though associates do make up a broader portion of most law firms too, so it somewhat tracks. Um, equity partners, about 16%, non-equity, about 14%. So a good mix. And then just to reiterate, this is not just for attorneys, it's for anybody working in law firms. So throughout here, we have other um, non-timekeepers and business professionals, paralegals, marketing, human service, human resources, business development, library, tech, all sorts of folks from firms filling this out. I think um, that's one of the really nice things is the survey is really going to the mental health of the profession as a whole. 
including yeah. what I call allied legal professionals, not just the attorneys. Without a doubt. And when you break out the data among, I mean, there's so many different ways to cut and slice this data, and it, it really does tell you a lot about how you, it's not always a one-size-fits-all approach to how you handle this. Every role has something different that they're coming to this with. Um, and I know we'll talk a bit more about that, but just to give you a sense of some of the new questions and we scaled back a bit on COVID related questions, obviously, but certainly there were, were more looking at the hybrid workforce and, and how that impacts. And we had some of those last year as well, but we also added questions along with things that we typically have asked around, are you depressed, anxious, another mental health issue, drug problem, alcohol problem. We added a number of things that get a little bit more to the core of how folks are feeling um, with some heavy, questions, um, but are you hopeless? Are you exhausted? Do you hate your job? Do you have moodiness and irritability? Have you lost motivation? Um, decreased satisfaction or sense of accomplishment? Cynical or negative? Do you feel alone in the world? So really interesting responses from some I of thought, these questions. I thought personally that that was one of the, the real differentiators in this year's survey is it, 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 as big a survey as it was, and even though surveys are designed to be how they are, it actually gave us a glimpse into sort of the individual states of the respondents, which was, was really fabulous. And that kind of brings us to the, to the first topic, which is looking at the survey trend and um, the numbers are, are, are pretty daunting. It looks like the profession kind of has a feeling of being lost and, and, and professionals are sort of drifting without sort of any sort of um, uh, sense of confidence. I mean, 49 of the percent of the respondents felt the industry was in a state of crisis. 38% felt depressed. 71% felt anxiety. And this was a, a really interesting one that 31% suffer from some other form of mental illness. Um, more than 50% think feel like a sense of failure and doubt. 55% have decreased sense of satisfaction and accomplishment. 52% have an increasingly cynical and negative outlook. And almost 54% feel they've lost motivation. So Mike, you're, you're with lawyers all the time, you know, advocating, teaching, doing CLEs in the law schools. What did you make of those statistics? Because they are, they are, daunting to look at if you're an advocate for wellness in our profession. Yeah, I mean, for sure. So I think on the, the first thing I noticed, um, and, and other people, of course, noticed, um, is that if you look at the statistics, um, instead of getting better, um, in a lot of ways, it seems we're getting worse. Like if you look at, there are more people reporting being depressed, there are more people reporting being anxious, there are more people reporting other mental health issues as compared to the prior year. Um, so the first thing I think you think is, well, my gosh, like we're out here talking about this, we're doing all this work, uh, right? Law firms are, are, are trying to do things to change. And despite the fact that this conversation is out here, oh my God, we're actually doing worse. Um, and I think, you know, one thing that I make of that, I mean, there are a couple of things, I think, when you sit back and think about it. Um, I think the first is we need to listen and pay attention to this and listen and pay attention to what people are telling us about how they feel. Um, so like full stop, all right? But 
the other thing that that I that I think is um, some of this um, maybe um, might be due to more awareness um, about these issues um, and more willingness to say like yeah you know I am having a problem. Well, that actually was a thought of mine that are these numbers reflective of a worsening trend or are they more of a true up as people begin to actually say how they feel? Yeah, I so think I think it's a mixed bag. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a mixed bag there. I think I don't, I don't I'm, I'm, I'm not comfortable saying, oh, this is just more people saying how they feel. I do think my first point is is important. Um, but I think we have to acknowledge that 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 is a factor somewhat. The other thing I think about is, um, and, and I thought about this when I looked at the numbers, you know, on sort of the clinical mental health issues, but also on um, this set of questions um, on how people are feeling, um, which you just talked about, which I thought were really eye-opening um, questions, um, and, and also, you know, very, very scary and alarming uh, in terms of the number of people feeling exhausted, feeling helpless, feeling cynical, feeling negative. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, I wonder how much of that is reflective of just the state of our modern world, and people feeling overwhelmed with you know, economics and politics and technology. Um, and, and I'm sure layered on top of that always um, is the culture of your own work environment. And, and I know, you know, no matter when we've looked at this issue in the legal field, it hasn't been good. Um, but, you know, I read articles also, you know, I read an article earlier in the year about, you know, college students and how they're feeling and, and the numbers of college students that are considering dropping out are it's astronomical so so some of this i think also um is like wow this is kind of the modern condition and um and that's not to say that it's sustainable or good um it's just kind of a, you know a comment that that sort of pops out uh diane when you saw this data and being in the in the law firm mix um what were your thoughts in, in, in looking in the context of, of, of the, the demographics of the group that responded? Um, do you have any you know, different perspective on why this data might be so, so skewed? Uh, not skewed, but it's surprisingly trending in the wrong direction. One thing that really struck me was that when we looked at the demographics, um, it skewed really the majority of participants in the survey were white or Caucasian. Um, and the numbers for um, participants of color and other demographic categories were much lower, markedly lower. So um, I think it's possible that if we had had greater, or if they had had greater participation, and thank you again, Gina and your team for doing this amazing and important work, um, it's possible the numbers might have been grimmer, unfortunately, because as we know from other studies, you know, people in non-dominant um, categories are usually disproportionately affected by well-being and mental health struggles. That's a very that's a very interesting point. So, in fact, um, these statistics could potentially be worse if if we had had that wider demographic participation. Yeah, I mean, I'm really struggling. I'm trying to not attach stressful labels to the data. It's hard not to, right? <laughs> but, um, you know, I think 
for sure we have a challenge and it doesn't appear it doesn't appear to be getting better although sometimes the optimist in me thinks you know sometimes a bruise gets darker before it heals and so i think there is a lot of movement you know i think really if we step back we really have to look at this on at least three levels the individual level right giving individual attorneys and 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 um, what did you call? Them? I really loved it. Allied legal professionals. I love that mark. Um, giving people tools to build resilience, fight stress, regulate their nervous system—all the things that we saw in the article that talked about the data. So the individual level, the organizational level, where you know, and I'm sure Paul is going to talk about that. Systems, teams, leadership, things like that, and then the professional level, meaning like the industry, the legal industry, and I think my perception and totally open it to others i think we're doing pretty well on the individual level and the professional level right the profession is doing a lot to raise awareness about um well-being in the legal profession and i think really where we need to go to sort of start to move the, the dial is on that organizational level i think that's a great point um Gina, when when you got, got when you all got the data, and Dan Rowe wrote an amazing article, and Chelsea put together an incredible infographic. The article touched on the fact that there were some who felt that there might be some lingering sort of PTSD slash guilt slash unresolved issues from the acute phase of the pandemic. Um, what did you expect that maybe as we were further away from the pandemic that that you might see improvement as that sort of mind shift um and 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 mental state and acute state of you know life-threatening environment was further away that there might be you know you know a positive trend as we got more distance from the acute phase of the pandemic where the were those um were these results surprising in that looking at, at it through that frame? So I did expect to see some improvements, um, in part because we started to see some levels of improvement last year. And we got the results. And I'm like, oh no, like all this work <laughs> we're all doing and all of these discussions, like how is it, how is it getting worse? And I, I in reading Dan Rose's article, it really did open my eyes to the fact, I mean, I just think about myself. So like, yes, we all survived. Those of us, frankly, we shouldn't say we all, it's, you know, those of us who did, we survived. But we did, we weren't thriving. And now we're kind of thrown back into new stressors of back to commuting, back to figuring out how to get to the office and manage life and all of these things. And, you know, the pressure and then the economic pressures. And it's just, there's a lot going on both with, kind of healing ourselves from what we went through because we were just in survival mode and we never had a time to just sit down and calm down and, and heal and then get back into this new world order. We jumped right back into, okay, great. We can go back to the way things were. Um, and I think that's been a lot for people. So you're dealing with both the trauma from before and, and new trauma that we need to get our minds around. And like maybe not trauma, but new ways of having to think about what our days and our lives look like. And overlaid on that, what I think a lot of law firms are dealing with, we all kind of came out of the pandemic thinking, I have a new way of looking at life and new expectations for it. 
and a purpose that I want. And that's not what organizations are necessarily thinking about. I mean, some are, but if, when we're going back to normal, you know, get back to work, we're not thinking about, okay, well, what is the work that I'm doing? And is that fulfilling me? Well, I think that one thing that's interesting is the biggest demographic of responders to the survey were in the younger ranges of the, the, the age continuum. And that fascinates me because, you know, all you have to do is pick an industry, pick fitness, for example, and look at Instagram and see how many young fitness professionals are building a brand and turning a side hustle into a real paying gig. We have a generation of people that are quite capable of doing entrepreneurial things. And so as I looked at the survey through that frame, I'm thinking, are they really going to be happy in a, in, a, in a historic institutional environment when they when they have all the you know tools and low barriers of entry to doing some really interesting things and wondering whether that was impacting their psyche? And that gets me to Paula because you know you 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 work on teaching resilience training, you know, sometimes from the top down to teach organizations how to create a resilient um, environment where, where people don't feel burnout. But if you look at these statistics, 66% per, have mental and physical overwhelm and fatigue. 70% say they're exhausted. 62% have trouble concentrating. 60% subject to their moodiness and irritability. That can't be a recipe for high performance or longevity. No, I mean, it's it's definitely not. And I want to echo something that Gina said, because it's where I start a lot of my framing of what I talk about with, with firms and leaders and what have you. And it's this combination of, I mean, you have to think about where we've been over the past few years, and you even have to go before that. So the legal profession has always been one of 24-7, always on pace. Uh, clients call, we say, yes, we, you know, we're picking up the phone at nine o'clock on a Saturday on vacations and things of that nature. And so the legal profession has always been a stressful one, but then you add the pandemic to it. You, most, many firms experienced tremendously high rates of growth during the pandemic. And so you, um, you took high levels of work and you accelerated that for a handful of years. You had the large social justice issues that we saw. You have a new way of working. Um, we have now the wrestling of trying to figure out, are we going to stay working hybrid or are we going to keep stepping people back, um, you know, to more time in a physical office space, which is having consequences. You have the economic uncertainty that we have been feeling and you add all of that up and there's been no let up. I mean, we've had our foot on the gas for at least three years, if not longer than that. And so so these statistics in part don't really surprise me. And, and that's, I mean, for the last three years in particular, I've been sitting with leaders and individuals and folks talking about, you know, burnout and burnout is a combination of chronic exhaustion, chronic cynicism, and feeling a sense of um, inefficacy or lost impact, that disengagement, that disconnection, that why bother, who cares? And so you're seeing that bubble up and, and in the statistics you just mentioned um, and in other places in this survey. And so... Um, I think it keeps going back to, you know, also what Diane said is we have to start taking a step back and looking at, you know, more of the root cause issues of this, you know, what it was 73 or 75% of folks said it's, you know, also my legal environment that is factoring into how I feel. 
And so really starting in earnest to educate and, and look through that lens, um, you know, I talk about, you know, six main drivers of chronic stress in organizations, and it's things like unmanageable workload and lack of recognition and not enough flexibility and control, and we don't have a strong team, so there's this lack of community, there's unfairness, there's favoritism, there's um, values disconnects, right? And so that I think comes up with some of the generational conversation. What do, what do I value versus what is the organization saying it values? And you see that play out in a lot of these comments, right? I, I have certain values, but can we get away from this myopic focus of just money, money, money um, in the profession? So there's lots of different ways we can go with this discussion, but all of this to me is part of this conversation and factoring into why people are feeling such high levels of particularly that stress, tiredness, exhaustion, cynicism, frustration, hopelessness, helplessness. We're kind of getting to a point where we're like, there's nothing else I can do. What do you want me to do in the confines of my day-to-day? -day? We've got to start to look yeah. bigger than- You touched on an interesting um, uh, comment when you mentioned money because we had a period of time, and it ties into what Gina was saying about how much, how heavy the respondents were from big law. Um, we had a period of time where they were throwing records amounts of starting salaries at associates, um, big bonuses. They didn't seem to get any happier. Now we're, we're, we're at a period of time where within like a two and a half year swing, trying to compensate for over hiring or hiring to meet excess capacity instead of learning to when to say no. And now we're laying people off. So you're kind of, you're showing them big salaries don't make people happier necessarily. And now you're telling them their big salaries might be at risk. That can't, that, that cannot be a good sign for how um, great the younger folks in the industry are going to feel about their worker themselves, I, I don't think. Well, no, and I mean, we can all jump in on this, but I mean, the research for a long time has shown pretty clearly that money isn't something that necessarily in and of itself buys happiness. And so I wrote an article about this a couple of years ago, you know, pointing to a study that was done in the profession showing that um, you know, the, the outward sort of external ways that we tend to think of success and metrics don't correlate to motivation and well-being in the profession. And in fact, it was things like that autonomy, having a sense of control and flexibility, belonging, do I feel cared about and cared for? Do people have my back? Can I show up to an organization and a team in an environment that matters to me? And a sense of mastery. Am I getting better at goals and things that matter to me? Do other people know how I want to develop as a professional in the legal profession? And are they helping me? Are they helping me get there? Those things matter inordinately to how happy we are, how fulfilled we are, our sense of motivation and our sense of well-being. And so um, I don't know that we're placing enough emphasis there for sure at all on those types of things. And we continue to fall back on. I think what we're used to falling back on, which is billable hours metrics and, you know, how much money we bring in and how much money we're paid and things like that, which are important. I mean, they're not things that we, we can wholly discount, but um, we're ignoring again um, some of that human side. And you saw that in a lot of the comments, right? Could we start upping how much we care about each other and talking about the fact that we're humans and not robots and, um, you know, that you're starting to see that human centric focus start to um or continue to be amplified. Diane, what are your thoughts? Because I know you've looked at the metrics and have drawn some conclusions 
on um, you know whether people could see themselves staying with the profession. Yeah, and I know Mike has some really juicy stuff he wants to talk about too. So um, it was really interesting to me that even with all that came out in the survey, uh, 69.17% said they could see themselves still in the profession in five to 10 years. And now to be fair, maybe that doesn't mean in big law, although it looked like, and Gina can correct me if I'm wrong, it looked like the majority of respondents were in big law, either a thousand lawyers or more like 500 to a thousand. So as someone, a part of my role is also coaching. And so I talk to a lot of our attorneys who maybe want to transition to in-house or go to the government. And one of the biggest things that keeps them stuck where they are is the fact that they will, it's very unlikely they will ever make a salary that's as high as they will get in a law firm. So I 100% agree with Paula that money doesn't buy happiness, but that you have to take that into account when you make life choices within your career choices, right? And some people end up over leveraging themselves, right? They they buy a second home, they have all their kids in private school, they, you know, whatever, you name it. Um, they They spend to the money they earn, and sometimes that has consequences where, you know, they can't make a move to go in-house. Um, so, you know, I think that's something that we, you know, on the firm side, we need to do a better job of kind of helping people to track their life choices with their career choices. But again, that's partially why we can't disassociate the individual from this because individuals are making these life choices. That is, that is, that is exactly right. And money can sometimes become handcuffs. Gina, uh, I think you have a perspective on this as well. Just to give you a kind of an anecdotal um, point to, to emphasize what Diane is saying, a managing partner was recounting to me how they had a bet with their COO. They were at a, an associate-wide meeting and they said, you know, which do you think the associates are going to pick? And they said, would you rather 10K bonus now in your pocket or 30K from us in your, you know, pension, whatever, your your, your retirement and we'll vest and we'll match and, and all that stuff. And 95% picked 10K now. Um, and so that's just the mentality of, you know, people are living for the moment right now. And they're, they, and part of that, it's, it's a kind of a conflict, right? I want to be paid now for the work I'm doing now. And, and, and hopefully that'll let me, you know, move forward and get to a point where I don't have to work this hard. But at the same time, I want to have meaning now and I want my wellness now. And it's, there are two things that sometimes conflict. I think that's yeah. where we need to figure this out. There's a big sort of kind of sonic boom when you begin to think that you're always going to make money at that level, recognizing that 99.99% of the world never makes money at that level and it's not a given. And so when you, um, when you buy into being part of that 0.1%, um, it's very hard to downshift because unless you're a billionaire or a multimillionaire, you living like you're in that 0.1% means leverage. Mike, I know you have some thoughts and then we're, we're going to segue a little bit to um, what law firms are doing and, and what they can do to be effective, but um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, thanks, Mark. As I'm sitting here listening to, to you and Diane and Gina and Paula, you know, I'm thinking preach, right? And I'm thinking preach to the choir. And I'm also thinking 
we really need to grow that that choir um you know because i'm you know i'm hearing so many things that that resonate um in terms of you know should we be you know is it depressing for lack of a better word to see these statistics and have hoped for more change you know yes um but also the explanations sort of they resonate, right? So much is happening where, okay, now we're returned to work, returned to normal, but we have, you know, a generation that's been through this, whose values are shifting. Um, we have, you know, the talent and the younger folks in the workforce emphasizing uh, their mental health over things like economics and, and doing it in ways that our generation uh, never did as well. Um, and, and so I think, you know, but, but it's also stressful, right? That people, firms are saying, well, how do I return back to normal? And I, I, I remember this, um, this headline, I know it was an American lawyer piece, but, um, you know, have we reached quote, like peak empathy, right? Law, law firms thinking like, oh, like we're spending so much time thinking about, you know, mental health and diversity, you know, can't we just go back to the old way? And, 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 and that's stressful. I understand that, but there, you know, there isn't no going back. And, and I think it's interesting um, that, you know, I think we really need to grow the way we look at the business case. I think it makes sense in dollars and cents, the business case, right? You look at attrition, you look at burnout, you look at all the money spent recruiting and training people. And then, you know, if they leave in a year and a half, that's bad business. It's also not great for clients. But when I look at this list of how people are feeling, I, I wrote it all down. I'm looking at it. I'm looking at the statistics of people feeling exhausted and trapped and cynical and negative. Like those are not people that I that I feel comfortable, you know, are optimally functioning as my advocates, being innovative, being creative. Um, so I think we have to look at the business case for this in a broader way. And I think in many ways it makes sense, right? It's super basic, right? We are selling our brains, so of course we should take care of our brains. But when you get down into the nitty gritty of it and overlay the economic situation and all sorts of things and return to the office, it gets a lot more complicated. Um, but I do think it's really important to kind of cut through. That and, and and focus on that for law firms. Yeah, I agree. And and you know, Mike, you've heard me say this. Kind of my my hat thesis is that lawyers and allied legal professionals are intellectual athletes. And we take our sports figures and our sports teams and our even down to the high school level, and we give them rest days and we give them ice baths and we give them trainers and. We understand that if on Sunday or Saturday they're going to have a great performance, it's because we've not worn them down during the week. Yet we take our intellectual athletes and we think that they can train without a break and not break. And, you know, in sports, overtraining causes injuries. Well, yeah. in law, overtraining causes, you know, potentially suicide, attrition, depression, um, and, and quite frankly, not peak performance clients it's it, it doesn't serve clients um i think it's a great analogy Mark. i think it's one a great thing mike i want to ask you before we move on because you're doing some things with um law students and i, I and i i asked this for two reasons because we have people going into firms now that did part of their law school remotely right yeah and and, and so we have that juxtaposed for this one to bring people back in the office but the other thing is when you're working with law students, is their outlook different? Are they looking at, are they, am I going to get the, the, the big law job for a hundred and 200 plus thousand dollars a year? Or am I going to use my legal education differently? What kind of, do you have some sort of sense of what these, these law students are thinking? Yeah. I mean, some sense, I don't know that I have the, you know, a perfect window into it, 
Um, but I do have the opportunity through, you know, the teaching my class at NYU and also through luring while you've been going into schools and talking about these issues. Um, and, and, and I think, um, you know, when we talk about these issues, I think law students are, they're concerned and they ask good questions, right? Um, and, you know, even though we're having this conversation, they're like, okay, but how do I manage it when I have this super stressful deadline? And, and you know, so I think they're, they're very much thinking about this. Um, and, and I think with a generation very much thinking about this, a generation of talent thinking about this, you know, there's some, I think, that are saying, okay, I can be more entrepreneurial, but there still is, you know, a great institutional push into law firms and big law. And I don't think that's nice to school that. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think that's really changing anytime soon. And, and, you know, we mentioned, you know, sort of the golden handcuffs and the getting used to it and the momentum of, of staying in a job. You know, I can, I can share personally that, you know, people also fear change and change is really hard. Like when I, when I, during 2021, when, when I took a medical leave and I had sort of a come to Jesus moment of, oh my God, you know, maybe, I shouldn't be a lawyer anymore because this is so stressful and I'm not doing a good job managing it. Um, you know, I thought, well, geez, like this is kind of all I've done for 20 years. I don't, I don't, what else could I do? Um, and, and I, you know, and I recognize that this survey is, um, you know, a lot of the data is, is, is young people. This is their first job, um, right? They're, they're just going out there trying to do a good job, trying to navigate this. Um, and I think, you know, it, it, they hear all the stories, right? They read all the headlines. They understand the reputation that big law has. They see the numbers, right? And so they, they, they're they they're there in school. They're going into this, but they also are really, you know, thinking about how to manage this. And, and I think, you know, I'm glad that this survey has a lot of information from young people. I think we should be focusing there. I also hope that in the future, uh, you know, we get more information from older folks, um, and I'm including myself in that category, because I think uh, there are different sets of stressors and pressures um, in the legal field um, that that cause people to, you know, still have, you know, mental health related issues and issues we should be paying attention to, um, not just for young associates, but for 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 everyone. Uh, Paula, you had a you had a comment in the comments, and it ties, I think, to part of the demographic, which was what I would call matriculating associates that are, you know, like a little above five years and like five to 10 years, that was a pretty decent tranche of respondents. And, you know, the, the sort of mindset they're going to be forced into having from just doing the work at all those hours to also having to become business development folks and to bring in clients and the potential that that has to add in uh, another stressor. Yes. So there's the business development pressure. So there's a number of different ways I think we need to look at this. There's the business development pressure that I think is very real. Um, and that's a conversation that doesn't get started until I think quite a bit later than it should in the arc of a lawyer's career. So as someone now who's owned a business for 10 plus years and is knee deep in business development all the time, uh, it, it doesn't happen overnight and it takes quite a bit of time. I have a friend who is a, um, he's a year into being a new, a new partner at a firm and he's now just starting to get his kind of his feet underneath him in terms of how to go about developing business. And it's been extraordinarily stressful for him knowing that he's now, Kind of being measured on this and there's a big spotlight on how he's doing with this now that he is a partner. Um, I think separate and apart from that though, I think we also need to draw clients into this conversation that we're having more so um, about, uh, about mental health in the legal profession because 
I mean, for a number of different reasons, I think clients certainly are a source of stress, but I also see uh, a lot of lawyers, I think there's a lot of fear around, can I push back? Can I set boundaries? Can I have tough conversations with my client around some of these issues? Because my team is wearing out and is wearing thin. Um, when I talk to in-house teams, one of the things that frustrates them the most is when they see lots of attrition on the teams with which they work because they don't want to keep having, you know, newer attorneys needing to learn their business systems and their business models and what's going on within their business. And so some of my favorite programs are when we can actually get lawyers and legal professionals in the same room with clients and start to have these conversations so we can have really a, the discussion too that's needed across the table that, you know, we we all have a role to play in how we handle a lot of these issues and um, obviously every firm is going to say, my clients come first. It's, you know, it's, we're going to do whatever we can to service our clients in a very client-centric message. Um, but how do we do that in a way that still preserves well-being for everyone? And as we've all talked about, good lawyering, you know, not something, you know, not a lawyer who's completely worn out, who might not have that same level of creativity. Uh, you know, how, how can we do all of that? So I think it's a really important piece that's missing in this conversation. So I, I want to kind of uh, um, pick up on that thread, and um, we've had some comments, and, and I had actually thought about it as well because it's one of the it's one of the most talked about things on the planet in in the legal sphere was the infamous Paul Hastings slide, which was um, in many respects a true statement of. Um, what it's like to thrive in big law, but it's also a declarative statement of an institutional mindset that's not, in my view, healthy to longevity or peak performance. And I'd really like to get, I know Mike's done some writing on this, and Gina, you, your, your brilliant newsroom has written all on, on this. Diane, you're within the firm context. So at a, you know, with a with a, a large, you know, globally respected firm. So I'd like to get, you know, starting with Gina, some comments on, on on that and what it what it might say in terms of the structural issues with the profession. Sure thing. So yeah, just as a reminder for folks, I mean, the slide talked a lot about the twenty four seven online all the time expectations. The client calls you answer yesterday. I don't know is not an acceptable answer. Google first before you ask questions, uh, that type of you know mentality. And what was interesting to us was the responses to the slide and they were split and mixed. And it was some folks thinking that's so out of date and out of touch. It's exactly what's wrong with big law, not what it's like here where I am. Some clients thinking we certainly don't expect that type of thinking within our provider law firms they're they're putting that on themselves that's not us to plenty of people saying yeah that's why we pay big rates either from the client or the law firm side saying yes this is this is the type of service we are expected to offer maybe you don't say it that way on the slide but this this is reality this is why we are able to charge as much this is we're working on critical matters for our clients and so it was really interesting to us to see the split i also think you know, it comes back to, well, maybe we can kind of redefine what's critical and what's not. And maybe there's room for both within what law firms do and that we can take some pressure off in some places. But I would love others thoughts on that. 
Mike, um, your thoughts. I, I will say one thing that really I think about a lot personally is, is the demographics of the firm leadership um, skews younger. And will some of these sort of what we think are institutional mindsets change? Um, because because firm leadership um, demographically skews in a certain age group in a certain, you know, largely largely Caucasian um, group of, of, of men. And as it skews, as it skews younger and becomes more diverse, I wonder if those thinkings will change. But Mike, you wrote, so I think you wrote a really nice sort of contra slide, if I remember. Yeah. I love your thoughts. And then I yeah, want to go I mean, to Diane, because I think I want to get into not only that slide, but also what she sees firms being able to do in terms of moving the dial. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, having something like that, I know, you know, in our space, right, it quote unquote went viral um, because, you know, like a meme, like, you know, like you said, it expresses certain truths. Um, and, you know, like like Mark was saying earlier and like Dan was saying, um, we have to focus not just on the individual, but on these institutional cultural levels, right? Um, if if a culture makes <laughs> seeking help impossible because it's just, you can dream of doing it, um, then, you know, nothing else really matters. It doesn't matter what you offer, what you do. And I think uh, in part that I think explains um, some of the survey results, right? Institutional change is slow and it's hard. Um, and, and I think when we think about, you know, well, we've been talking about this and, and the conversation is definitely elevated and there's a great community of people thinking and talking about this and there are people inside law firms thinking and talking about this. Um, but in the end, you know, what real structural cultural changes have been made? Um, those take a longer time. And on the Paul Hastings slide, I think what Gina said is really interesting. And, and I noted the same thing, um, that there is, a, there was a split, you know, a lot of people, right, depends like who your friends are, right, a lot of people that, that I'm connected with on LinkedIn, you know, are in this well-being movement, and they're all, and they're all aghast saying, oh my god, this is horrible, um, and, and I wrote, a, it was a top 10, that slide, so I wrote a sort of um, a counter view top 10, because I really think that no matter what clients expect, or it, a lot of the things on that slide um, are, lead to bad, are, are just bad lawyering, um, right. I want my young people to ask me a question rather than spinning their wheels for two days and looking something up on Google. I don't want my people, you know, or, or to me to be on 24 seven, because I know that there's literal scientific evidence that that's going to make me less creative and less successful. Um, despite that, there are a lot of people when you go out into the bigger, scarier world and you're reading and people are saying, yeah, that's great. This is the truth. Why are we afraid of the truth? Um, and so it, it just, I think it puts a point on how important culture is in all of this or and or the organizational level. Um, you know, we can't stop at the individual level. Um, it's important, right? But but if you if you're you know learning mindfulness and learning yoga and seeing a therapist, and then you go to work and and it's a toxic environment, well, that just feels like you're being whipsawed. And I've talked to associates who feel that way. I've talked to associates who say, we're having this conversation about mental health and well-being. And then four minutes later, we're being we're we're, be, we're saying in the, by the same person in the same meeting, we're being told like those seventy hours you worked last week. Can we bump those up a little bit? Um, and what's a young person to make of that? Totally, totally agree. I will, anecdotally, I'll say when I saw that post Paul Hastings slide, I had a, a, a bad flashback because I remember as a young lawyer at a big Cleveland firm, 
leaving my office eight o'clock at night to take my dog to the emergency vet hospital being told that my priorities were a little screwed up. <laughs> um, which, which I was like, how can you not put your dog first? Got my bias. Diane, I'd love to get your take and, and, and also to start to talk about some of the things um, your firm has been doing because we've been at this a while and get some sense of how how um, how much time it takes to start to move the needle in a fully sort of committed program, much less sort of a versioning program. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Yeah, I mean, there, and I'm try, I'll try to tie the slide because in many ways I think it's indicative of what what we're looking at and what it takes. Um, but it, you know, I think the truth is it takes a while. I I will be at the firm six years, and I've been at it in my role as well being for five. Um, and there were certainly things in place before that as well. And so we have a lot of people, not just me, who focus on it. Um, so. I'll answer this your question directly and then bring it back to the slide. So in terms of like what what I think needs to be in place, I really think you do have to anchor it in an intention to make an impact because if you're doing it to kind of just throw something up there to say that you have well-being or you know some kind of band-aid strategy it's probably not going to work. You also have to anchor in the intention to have an impact because it's going to take time and it is hard work. Um and you know, I think I probably said this on the last episode I was on, a lot of what we've done is like throw spaghetti at the wall and, and see what really sticks. Um, and so I would say one of the things you really have to do, and I think this gets back to Mike, Mike's point about we really have to be better listeners, is you have to get input on what people think is helpful for their well-being. Um, and, you know, we've learned this through, again, the spaghetti tossing, but a lot of the things that have been the most popular are not things like exercise and nutrition or meditation. It's things like time management, um, how to change better, you know, how to have better habits. Um, you know, how can you leverage technology? You know, how does the brain work? How can I have a difficult conversation? Um, how can I deal with maybe a difficult person? Not that we have them at Winston, but, you know, like opposing counsel, let's say, or co-counsel, right? So those are some of the maybe not as obvious or well-being adjacent things that people have, you know, showed interest in. And then, you know, because I work with people one-on-one, -on -one, if I see a theme like burnout or um, dealing with um, a difficult teammate, let's say, then, you know, then we'll throw a training together because we'll know it's going to land a little bit. But there's so many time pressures for associates and partners that, you know, a lot of times the well-being stuff will get deprioritized because, you know, back, that gets us back to the billable hours, right? And um, so I think that's one thing. If you can offer CLE credit, that's another draw to get people um, in. We've also found that, you know, we record everything now because it's so hard in a big law firm to pick one time that's going to work for everyone. And I have had people come back and say, you know, it was great that I was able to listen to, um, you know, to the recording. And, you know, maybe I always encourage people, if you're going to listen to the recording, go for a walk or do something where you can multitask with a well-being activity if possible. 
um, leveraging leaders are, you know, our, our popular topics when it's not an outside speaker or something I'm doing are usually ones that include people at high levels of leadership in our firm because people want to hear, well, what are they doing, right? What are they doing um, to enhance their well-being? So almost everything we do will have at least one or two executive committee members on it or an office managing partner or practice group That's leader. so important. It's so, so important. Although we have had associates come back and say, but I also want associates on there because I want to know what are they doing, you know, the, they're doing it from their seat on the executive committee, which is a, you know, place of time privilege and in, in their eyes, right? Not that our executive committee works very hard, obviously. Um, so we have worked in associates to say, okay, well, here's, here's how you can maybe calibrate that for the associates level. Um, and then I, I've made it a priority over the last two years to make sure I'm including our associates committee in there because Again, I want to know that we're giving, you know, things that are going to land. And I guess the thing that ties it to the slide for Paul Hastings, um, you know, and I always like to assume positive intent, you know, so I think, one, I think this associate is probably speaking from a lens of burnout and high levels of stress, right? You know, there's a lot of, if we, if we are looking at this compassionately, there's kind of a lot of fear under what this person is saying, right? Um, so I want to acknowledge that. I also think it's highly possible they are spewing out what they have learned from their leaders. And so what we're really trying to do now is look at the lead, look at this from a leadership training lens. How can we look at our leadership training, which you know, leadership is very well being adjacent, right? If you're taking these things into account as a leader, you're you are leading with empathy. You are looking for signs and symptoms of burnout and other mental health challenges. So we've been really trying to work that in. So I've been partnering with our uh, learning and development team. We did like a you know, like an apprenticeship program where we focused on things like psychological safety, grit, and feedback. So I think, you know, we probably aren't going to change our well-being programming all that much going forward because I don't think it's at the programming level anymore. I think we have to take it up to the leadership level. And then also it has to be incorporated with a systems approach, you know. And so, for example, one of the systems things we're looking at right now is our staffing model. So I could go on, but I'll, I'll leave it there. Well, I, I think that's a nice way to segue um, into, you know, kind of the structural issues that we face. Um, I know this, this particular group of podcast guests is passionate because I've been watching the comments, um, which have been extremely vibrant and helpful. You know, we're in a state where um, 70 Six percent of survey respondents believe their work environment contributes to their mental health issues with respect to their general mental health. 67% do not believe they could take an extended leave from their job to get treatment for a mental health or substance abuse issues. And only 41% of the respondents feel that their workplace is a safe environment to raise concerns about mental health and substance abuse. Um, and juxtaposed with that is, and, and this is both shown by the data, the comments, um, uh, the, the survey left the space for the, for the freehand free comments, so to speak, is, um, you know, two big drivers for, for, for the way folks were feeling was the billable hour um, and its, its, its importance to partner income and the perhaps separation of interest between partners and 
the people who generate the bottom, the part of the pyramid that generates the leverage and um, the inability to meet those hours requirements and really have much personal time, even if you do all of those modalities that you suggested in terms of those practical skills and then the unwillingness to push back. So my question is, we know billable hours are an issue, but we know billable hours are an issue for a whole host of other reasons other than mental health for a very long time. I mean, I've been in the profession for coming on 35 years, um, 25 of it was in practice, part of it was running a firm, and we've been talking about alternative fee arrangements and different types of billing models for years. And yet here we are in 2023 um, with the billable the billable hours and models. So, so Mike, I know you feel passionate. I think everybody probably on this on this panel feels passionate that that needs to change. But I submit to you that it won't change anytime soon. You and I, Mike, will be um, in the same rest home by the time it changes. <laughs> If we're so young, we're so young. I don't know what to say. I look forward to that rest home. I'm not sure. But I mean, I, I get the point. rocking chairs, I promise. <laughs> That's a plus. Um, so yeah, I don't disagree, um, right? I've been practicing law for over 20 years. Um, on, on the billable hour, uh, you know, it's certainly worth talking about, right? If you look at the survey, um, you know, huge amount of folks looking at the billable hour uh, as one of their main sources uh, of the problem, along with that sort of always on and client demands. Um, but billable hour always, is always way up there in this conversation. And, and I agree with you. Um, it's, it's not going to change in our lifetime. I, I do want to say, um, and, and look, I, I think it, it, if you look at other um, um, types, you know, other, other occupations that do things differently and do it in different ways, um, you know, there are different ways possible, but I agree. It's very entrenched. Um, I, I, I will say that, you know, alternate fee arrangements also have their own problems, right? Like if you have a contingency, I'll say it from, right. If you have a contingency matter where you're not going to get paid unless there's a certain result, um, that can be very stressful and scary too. And you can put a whole lot of time and hours into that. So I don't, I don't know that there are any pan panaceas in terms of replacing billable hours with this other type of fee arrangement. But I do think that what's really important and that I hope that we can at least make some progress on, even though I still know it's an uphill battle, um, is I, I think that we need to, just like I was talking about expanding the way we view the business case for talking and thinking about these issues, I think that what we need to do is not so much get rid of the billable hour, but, but when we look at humans who are lawyers, evaluating them on more than the two numbers being book of business and billable hour. Um, because, you know, and I think that, you know, doing that, I think is, a, is, 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 I think a lot of people see that as, whoa, that's a big change. And it is a big change and it's harder and it's, it's less just relying on these two numbers. But I think we really have to evaluate people who are great mentors and people who, um, and, you know, people who, contribute to reducing stress in the workplace and people whose you know hours might be a little lower but contribute in other ways and i know that's hard and subjective and more work um and and people may have a view that that's you know woo woo and i want to look at the hard numbers um, but i do think that blending the approach in some way so that you're not just the sum of your billable hours and work which I think really reflects reality and value aside from this whole mental health conversation, uh, I think that would do a lot of good. So I think to me, that's kind of the focus. 
So I have a question for Gina, and then I want to I want to turn to Paula. Gina, first of all, I'll say this: um, the ALM newsroom is on fire covering this industry and the way they're covering this industry so comprehensively. Oh, thank you. Absolutely across all sectors of the issues facing the industry. But because of that, are, are, are you and are the wonderful reporters in your newsroom hearing that there's any softening or that there are any shifts that are being contemplated? Or are they still seeing that the billable hour is sort of still anchored to the ground? Um, I think it's still anchored to the ground. I think, you know, we're seeing layoffs based off of lack of hours um, at, cited as performance, as though demand, as though associates can generate demand, right? And, you know, I mean, it's, and so, it, yes, I get the business rationale, but when you tie, um, you know, nobody's reducing hours expectations, let's put it that way. If anything, they're, they're increasing. Um, and that was a big ask during the pandemic too. Can we reduce our hours expectations because I'm also caring for my kids and my parents and, um, you know, homeschooling and all of this stuff. And no, the answer is no. And, and it continues to go up. So I don't see a softening of the billable hour approach. I will say, you know, for those firms that are really going to dive into and embrace things like generative AI and other forms of innovation, that does lead to some hope, though it can add other stressors like how do we train up and how many how many young associates do we need and how do we train them if some of the work is being done um, by other tools. But I think those firms that embrace innovation probably have a better shot of this. So it's not just innovation on fee agreements, but in other ways. I think that's perhaps one of the most intriguing things about our profession right now is when we get through the hype and we've been through the hype you saw the hype at legal week um, i know some of your folks were out at clock as was i and saw the hype when we get to the hype and we figure out what is the what are the real value drivers and the practical applications of not just generative ai and large language models but all legal technology and who figures out how to titrate the dose of technology enablement with the right types of staffing levels and who, who, who get better at disaggregating the work to build the right types of teams to have more coverage. I think it's gonna be fascinating. And to me, that is perhaps gonna be the most compelling way to start to see the billable model. It, it is not the most effective way to deliver a high margin work product. Um, and the goal of profitability is the goal you want to figure out in the most efficient way to drive a high margin work product. And, and all we've thought about for as long as law firms have been around is the brute force equation, um, which leads me to think, um, which leads me to think that um, as, as, as more tech savvy leaders and more, um, more, more, more people who are facile with technology matriculate through the firms, there is hope. Now, Paula, I'm gonna I'm gonna close with you because I think that um, your focus on you know training you know leaders and training um, training on resiliency, not so much from a self help or an individual level, but from a structural level, is a good topic to end on. And so, if you will bring us home, would you? 
Yes, I, I, I will. I will attempt to bring us home. Um, so I'm a big fan as I as I'm hearing the uh, reading all the comments about the billable hours and having lots of conversations about that and hearing everyone's input on that. Um, I'm reminded that I'm a parent to a seven year old and I'm constantly asking myself to pick my battles like where are my battles with her and for me the billable hour is just not one of the battles that I I think is is <laughs> one that's going to lead to a lot of like outcome and change and so kind of circling back around to your comment where I try to focus is helping leaders understand that there are better teaming practices potentially to tap into, that there are what I call tiny noticeable things, TNTs, that we can start to focus on structurally, um, that we don't have to necessarily be thinking about like eradicating the billable hour, because I think that tunes out a lot of people also um, for a whole host of reasons. Um, and so I think if we can start by being open to um, you know, different practices uh, from a leadership and team standpoint, if we can start to think about um, how do we start to build the resilience of a team collectively of our groups of our organization, then I think that we can start to at least maybe address some of the pieces like the 24 seven always on pace. Um, you know, I, I had this conversation actually on Wednesday with, I spoke at a, a law firm partner annual meeting and we were having some conversations afterwards. And I said, you know, there are some lessons that we can learn from healthcare and from other organizations around how you can team more effectively, right? You could have a lawyer be on call for a weekend or two lawyers be on call for a weekend where they're handling all of the emergencies, but then they get a guaranteed break the following weekend so that they can go to their cousin's wedding or they can do whatever it is that they want to do and have a little bit of time off and appreciate that. So I, I pitched that in a number of respects. And sometimes I'm just met with blank stares. And one of the partners actually said to me, he said, but my client really expects that it's me who's going to answer when I call. So some of this we're, we're sort of doing to ourselves, right? We're not setting the expectation that there will be other people beyond me who will be helping you client and, and managing what that looks like. And so, so I think starting there with just, you know, some simple practices and thinking about how we actually you know process some of that can can at least maybe start to help us move the needle a little bit i think which is maybe our goal right we got to lower the bar a little bit uh with absolutely absolutely agree with you um one of the things i work predominantly advising legal departments is that legal departments need to learn how to sync and operate more like the business units right well i think our law firms need to start act they talk about the business of law but do they really practice it can you really scale um by 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 a brute force equation that gets as many hours as possible out of a breakable machine being a human being can you really scale truly scale and change the profitability equation by merger after merger after merger? Or do you have to look at how industry scales? Businesses scale and they don't scale by working their people 24 hours a day. They work by maintaining their equipment. They work by having shifts. They work by, um, you know, breaks. They work by all sorts of ways to grow scale. And law firms haven't really thought about delivering products at scale they view themselves as delivering hours 
in, in, in hours delivering products. And, and really, to me, that's never been how you figure out how to really truly be profitable. If you really want to take home more money, learn to deliver legal services as products as efficiently as possible with as many tools as are ethical and efficacious and rethink the, you know, the mechanics of how you grow margin. You guys have been fabulous. I, I can't even tell you, I know how each and every one of you is so busy. Um, Gina, you know, you're the editor-in-chief of a huge global brand. Mike, your commitment to not only your practice, but your advocacy is timeless. Diane and Paul, you have both been relentless innovators in the field. And I know you, you know, Paul, you have your own business to run. And Diane, you tend to the needs of a really large firm. I cannot tell you and thank you enough for participating and talking about this. It has been um a, a, a terrific experience for me and I hope hope for you. So this concludes episode 42 of Erasing the Stigma. My guests today have been Gina Passarello, Mike Kasdan, Diane Costigan, and Paula Davis. And we thank them all for their fabulous contributions. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.